This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, June 8, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. This month marks 10 years since the biggest eminent domain case ever before the U.S. Supreme Court in Kelo v. City of New London, Connecticut. The case found that public use is no longer the standard for taking property from the public. Only public purpose matters. Ilya Soman is author of the new book, The Grasping Hand, which looks at the Kelo decision. We spoke last month. I think two things have changed. One is that before Kilo, there was a near consensus among law professors, judges, and other experts that the government should be able to take private property for almost any reason it wants. And the people who thought that the public use restrictions of the Fifth Amendment, people who thought that those were at all meaningful, were either ill-informed about constitutional law or extremists who could be discounted. Now, thanks to Kilo, we have a big debate over this issue, and it's become mainstream to argue that public use is a real constraint uh, and should really be used to limit eminent domain. The second thing that has changed is that 45 states have passed eminent domain reform laws since Kilo. While many of those are not really effective, there are a good many that are, and eminent domain has become an issue of public controversy and not just something that only experts pay attention to. So when you talk about uh, what the consensus was beforehand, uh, you just reminded me of a quote here and I, I, I pulled it up. All of us owe the government. We owe it for everything we have and that is the basis of obligation and the government can take everything we have if the government needs it. The government can assert its right to have all the taxes it needs for any purpose either now or at any time in the future. That is Senator A.B. Happy Chandler of Kentucky. And this was decades ago, of course, but uh, I guess it uh, is part of that attitude that, hey, the government needs it and we're going to take it. Yeah. So the pre-existing dominant view before Kilo didn't go quite that far, but it almost did. Uh, the Fifth Amendment says you can only take private property for a public use. But beginning in the 1950s, the Supreme Court interpreted public use to mean anything that might conceivably benefit the public in some way, which is virtually anything that the government might want to take property for, even if it ends up giving the property to some private interest group that lobbies for it. Uh, and so for a long time, the federal Supreme Court imposed virtually no constraints on the reasons why the government might take property. And many state Supreme Courts followed a similar approach in interpreting their state constitutions. Since the Kelo decision, which, as I noted earlier, was uh, uh, very controversial at the time, um, you argue that that decision itself was uh, wrong on in at least two theories of constitutional law. Can you explain both of those? Uh, more than two. But basically, constitutional theorists tend to be divided between those who are originalists, those who think the Constitution should be interpreted as it was at the time it was enacted, and those who are so-called living constitutionalists who think interpretation should change over time to adjust to new social conditions and the like. In the book, I argued that whichever of these approaches you prefer, Kilo was probably wrong. I can go into the details of each one if you're interested, but 
from an originalist standpoint, public use at the time that the Fifth Amendment was written and also at the time that it first began to apply to state governments in 1868. Public use was generally understood by most people uh, as meaning either condemnation for government ownership or for some sort of private firm that had a legal obligation to serve the entire public, like a public utility, for example. And from a living constitution point of view, there are many different living constitution theories. I go through a lot of them in my book, uh, but many of them focus on the need to use judicial review to protect politically weak people, those who can't fend for themselves in the political process. Uh, and takings that transfer property to private parties tend to victimize the poor and the politically weak uh, disproportionately for the benefit of politically connected powerful interest groups that are a classic example of this very dynamic that many living constitutionalists say is precisely the sort of thing that we need judicial review for. That seems to be more of, a, of an idea that is concerned with ends rather than means. That is to say victimizing poor people is bad, so we want to avoid uh, judgments that would lead to that. So many living constitution theories do in fact focus on ends, uh, but even many originalist theories have an aspect of focus on ends to them as well because you still have to ask the question, why would you want to be an originalist in the first place? And for many people, the reason to be an originalist is that sticking to the original meaning has good consequence in the real world, better than letting judges adjust the meaning of the constitutional over time, and better than simply deferring to whatever the legislature wants to do. It probably doesn't surprise people to learn that uh, the Kelo decision, which was five to four in favor of the government of New London, Connecticut to take uh, property, in this case from Suzette Kilo, and give it or sell it. Was it were they just giving it to uh, the Pfizer Corporation? The Pfizer was not going to be the owner of the condemned property. They were going to give it to another developer. However, Pfizer played a big role in lobbying for the taking because they expected to benefit from it. Uh, they had were building a headquarters right nearby, and they thought that the new facilities there, hotel, high-income housing, and other things uh, would benefit their employees. In addition, some Pfizer executives said that they really didn't like the sort of the look of the lower middle-class houses that were there before. They said they didn't want to go into their office and see that out their window. So they had aesthetic reasons for which they hoped to benefit as well. All right. So it, it may not surprise people to hear that this was bad originalism if, if this were uh, how this uh, case turned out. But I think they would be surprised to hear that this was bad on the terms of even the people who might advocate for that decision being correct. Yeah. So there are many different living constitution theories out there. In the book, I go through some five or six of them. Let me just note two particularly significant ones. One I've already adverted to is the idea of representation reinforcement, that judicial review should protect those groups who can't fend for themselves, like unpopular racial and religious minorities, for example. When you look at who tends to be victimized by these sorts of takings, it is actually precisely people who have very little leverage in the political process, disproportionately poor people and minorities, but especially people who are just politically weak. In one sense, uh, this is an even clearer example of political weakness than many of the other cases that are usually advanced under this theory because when people lose their homes and are forced out of the community, often they don't even have the possibility of voting against the politicians that approved it at the next elections because they're not even living in the community anymore. So they're even 
even more powerless than mo some more conventional uh, groups that are focused on uh, under this theory. A second theory that has emerged in popularity over the last decade or two is the idea of popular constitutionalism, which says that the judicial review should be used to protect those rights that the American people consider to be especially important or that popular movements consider to be important, such as the civil rights movement, the feminist movement, the gun rights movement, and so forth. There's few better cases for popular constitutionalism than Kilo because surveys showed that over 80% of the public disapproved of the decision. This cuts across ideological lines, racial lines, partisan lines, and so forth. So it's actually a more clear case even than the civil rights movement was in the 60s or the feminist movement or the gun rights movement. Each of those movements had strong support on one side of the political spectrum, but, uh, but were opposed on the other. This one actually cut across traditional political lines. And that should have been clear just from looking at who filed briefs in the Kelo case. It seemed like all of the groups that were interested in people who suffered some kind of uh, oppression in the past or present were on one side of the issue and developers and city government associations were on the other. Yeah, that's right. For the most part, uh, for example, the NAACP filed a brief supporting the property owners as did various other civil rights groups, Hispanic groups, groups uh, representing the elderly and so forth. Uh, developers actually a little bit split. The National Association of Home Builders supported the property owners, uh, but there were some more big business types of interest that while they didn't necessarily file amicus briefs, uh, they did. They were more on the other side. Now that that case had been decided, of course, the backlash was that many states passed laws that attempted to deal with it uh, and perhaps limit the power of the state to have this blanket power uh, in the wake of that Supreme Court ruling. So what were the – what's the final tally or, or what's the balance of power now with respect to – states that uh, have tried to limit the eminent domain power? A total of 45 states have passed eminent domain reform laws, which is more state legislation than has ever been generated by any other Supreme Court decision probably in all of American history. There are a significant number of states, about 20, that have passed reform laws that really do constrain these takings in a meaningful way. Not all of them go as far as I think they should, but they, are, they do represent real progress. There is, however, an even larger number of laws that pretend to constrain these takings but really don't. I'm not going to go through all the details of how they don't, but the most common scenario is they say you can't take property from one person and give it to another private individual for economic development, but you can can do that very same thing if the property is declared blighted and then the standards for declaring a property blighted are so lax that almost any property, whether it be Buckingham Palace or your house, could potentially be declared blighted and taken if they want it to be. Now that is my that leads me to my next question. Blight as a designation seems to be sort of the next frontier in terms of reasserting the right of in particular homeowners uh, to avoid uh, eminent domain. And I'm thinking of scenarios in which maybe a city government isn't that interested in doing upkeep on neighborhoods that by all rights is the responsibility uh, of the city to engage in. Can you talk about that issue? 
Yeah. So there is two dimensions to the issue of blight takings. One is when I mentioned earlier, many states define blight so broadly that almost any property can be declared blighted and taken. Uh, so such places as downtown Las Vegas and Times Square in New York have been considered to be blighted, legally speaking, under this sort of approach. The other problem is that even in areas that genuinely are blighted, and there's certainly some that are, say, inner city neighborhoods in some places and the like, it doesn't necessarily follow that condemning the neighborhood and forcing people out uh, and destroying everything is the right way to go about dealing with this. We shouldn't destroy these neighborhoods in order to save them. Rather, there are other better approaches to promoting development there, including uh, respecting private property rights, which most development economists will tell you is actually very important to promoting investment and ensuring long-term growth. The history of blight takings, even in genuinely blighted areas, is actually a very sad and tragic one. Since the 1940s, we've probably forcibly displaced over 3 million people with these kinds of blight condemnations, most of them poor and racial minorities. And many of those people were actually left even worse off after the displacement than they were before. Is there a push now to bring a uh, similar case, another kilo-type case to the Supreme Court? Some. Uh, currently, there are efforts to try to bring to the Supreme Court an issue that is left ambiguous in Kilo, which is that they said you can condemn property for almost any public benefit. You don't even have to prove that the benefit will be realized. But they said pretextual takings are still forbidden, where the official rationale is just a pretext for benefiting a private party. Now, what is a pretextual taking? Uh, in Chapter 7 of my book, I go through about five or six different approaches that lower courts have adopted to try to figure this out. So there's a deep division, and this is the most likely issue to bring this back to the Supreme Court. If it does come back, there's a chance that Kilo itself would be reconsidered or narrowed or even overruled because it has attracted so much criticism and because even Justice John Paul Stevens, the author of the Kilo decision, has admitted that he made a serious mistake in some of his analysis. He still thinks he got the bottom line right, but it's rare that you have a high-profile Supreme Court decision where even the justice who wrote it admits that he made a significant error in his analysis there. Now, I, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of the dissents in that case. Uh, O'Connor wrote a dissent and uh, Justice Thomas wrote dissents that were just powerful and scathing. Yes, they did. And I think those dissents, particularly O'Connor's, played a really big role because the previous Supreme Court cases going back to the 50s, which said that the public use is almost any the government says it is, they were unanimous decisions. And that led people to conclude, well, there's really no controversy here. All reasonable jurists agree that a public use is almost any the government says it is. When you have a close 5-4 decision with Justice O'Connor writing a strong dissent, you can't say that anymore. If there's any judge who epitomizes mainstream moderation over the last, say, 25 or 30 years, it was Justice O'Connor who was generally viewed as sort of the voice of the mainstream in the middle. Ilya Soman is author of The Grasping Hand. You can watch a forum for the 10th anniversary of the Kelo decision this week at the Cato Institute. Find out more at Cato.org.